Hiya, I'm Nancy Polian and I work here at Southbank Centre. Hello, I'm Alex Williams and I work at Southbank Centre too. Welcome to the Violet Nights podcast. Violet Nights is a real life forum for big topics and big conversations for young people with the best guests. Violet Nights is a monthly free event and previously we've explored cancel culture, women in grime and children in the Windrush. Tonight's episode covers queer activism now and how this has changed 50 years on from the historic Stonewall riots in New York. Please note this episode contains swearing so if you're easily offended or if it's not appropriate to listen to right now, please switch off and listen to another episode. Alex, you created this one. Tell us who we're going to hear from. Award-winning youth activist Tanya Compass. I would say I'm more of like an accidental activist. I'm lucky now to be in a part of a really amazing community of people who are just doing sick things and majority are queer and black. Artist, filmmaker and trans rights campaigner Fox Fisher. Working with people on projects is something that I really love to do. Um, Same with My Generation, all the films that we make. We've got over 100 plus films, I can't believe it. And Dr Senraj, who's a lecturer in law at Kiel University. Because I've had such a wonderful home space, but also this kind of of academic space, it meant that I always saw the connections between the work that I was doing or studying and my own life. And discussions chaired by Amelia Abraham. She's a journalist and author of Queer Intentions, a personal journey for LGBTQ plus culture. When I was writing my book, I was like, oh, how can I sort of turn this book into like a Trojan horse of like LGBT, of, of like information or how can I kind of trick people into reading this? It was so good to do this one. I was really, really happy with the panel. It was so exciting to bring together just some of the next generation of queer change makers. So here we go. Hi. Thank you very much for having us. Um, just wanted to sort of ask everyone's thoughts on the panel and in the audience about how they're feeling about LGBTQ plus rights in Britain generally right now. Obviously, it's a bit of a broad question, but it feels like in the mainstream media, there's been this sort of oh, wow, we haven't come as far as we think we have realisation recently with the homophobic attacks that have been happening in Britain. But you sort of think, of course this is happening all the time. Does anyone else want to respond to that, Fox? I think um, from a trans perspective, Mm. uh, we had that report that came out today or or yesterday about uh, 81% hate crimes being reported, like an an increase of 81%. And uh, the, the Home Office was saying that was because that people felt more comfortable about reporting this kind of stuff. And it's probably a combination as well, but the mainstream media has a lot to answer for, for the way that trans people are represented. And there's just this core group of people who don't have a degree in in gender studies and they don't have, they're not trans and they don't have any experience of it. And yet they're given this platform day in, day out to, to kind of sprout misinformation and nonsense and that has a knock-on effect Mm, and so i'm just gonna read out a stat quickly which is that just a bounce of what you said that rainbow europe find the uk number nine out of 49 countries in europe in terms of lgbtq rights how how does that sound to you does that sound right or not i think it's bullshit to be honest i think like (laughs) genuinely i think it's hard with the work that i do with akt and working with like young like people who are experiencing homelessness because of their identity whether it's sexuality or gender identity and it's really hard when day in day out you get these young people that come to you and you refer themselves to you or are referred by somebody else and you have an assessment with them and they either been kicked out of their house or are threatened and feel like they can't live as who they are because they're threatened about getting honor killing whether it's honor killings or whether it's being kicked out of home and being made homeless whether it is assault like there's so many things that happen you know there's no hostels so you have to put young people in backpackers hostels then you can send them to a backpacker hostel and the person behind the desk is transphobic and they won't allow them to because we put them in with their with their with their name but then they have the dead name on their passport or their id so then they don't let them go there 
I had a case the other day and it was like, I take a day off work afterwards because it really emotionally took like taxing on myself. It's so upsetting. It really is. It like really breaks my heart every time when I work because I'm these young people because they come in with so much joy and they're like, oh my God, like really happy to have someone that listens to them and doesn't dismiss who they are, who actually genders them properly, who asks like, what's your pronouns? They're like, oh my God, I've not been asked that before. And there's so many organizations that need to do more, but it's hard to do more when the services aren't there to provide for young people. And I think that's why you can't, the comparison, I don't have time to compare or to read policies and I should, but I don't. Yeah. No, and, and actually, I find rankings enormously problematic, even yeah. though I would say I know quite a few laws and mm -hmm. policies, mm -hmm. because ultimately, what are you indexing against? You can look at places around their laws and policies that protect LGBT people, and I will use South Africa as an example for a moment, because it's the first constitution in the world that explicitly includes sexual orientation. I mean, if you read the constitution, it's a beautiful document that highlights dignity and human rights, and it's threaded throughout the kind of foundations of the state. And yet, if you look at the ground situation, the human rights abuses, you know, for example, the corrective rape, corrective rape of lesbian women, in particular bisexual women, there is endemic alongside sexual assault more generally. And we know HIV, for example, is, is a huge issue there with poor treatment, enormous stigma. And so often we use law as a benchmark or an index when it can actually really mislead people or misrepresent. So that's my first point. And I think the, the second point I would say as well is we often use LGBTI, for example, as a kind of a catch-all acronym, but we need to also disaggregate the letters sometimes because we can highlight on one hand the ways in which, for example, here in the UK, you know, same-sex relationships, lesbian and gay rights uh, have been, you know, supported, but then highlight just how appalling trans rights and treatment of trans and non-binary people are, and obviously intersex people as well who are subject to gender normalization surgeries, um, uh, you know, continue rampantly. Right. So again, you know, even though we talk about progress and we talk about LGBTI, we need to be able to break those down as well. And often it's also not a colonial narrative, because often when you look at these lists, it's often Western European nations that are at the top and then African and uh, Southeast Asian nations down the bottom. And then Latin America is usually in the middle. And my problem with this is actually, if you look at places like India and Pakistan, they have far more kind of evolved conversations around trans and non-binary people and intersex people. Pakistan arguably has one of the best pieces of legislation to protect trans rights when you compare it to somewhere like the UK. Now, we never hear about Pakistan in a conversation celebrating LGBT people. And that's also fair enough, because of course, when you look specifically around sexual orientation, LGB issues, there's enormous persecution. But again, this is the thing about these sorts of lists and these sorts of progress stories is that they're often enormously simplified. Mm. They're quite misleading and they often reflect this kind of colonial mentality, right? Because so many of the countries that still criminalize, there are still about 69, I believe, that criminalize homosexuality do so from their colonial hangovers, right, in their, in their penal codes. That's not to say that, you know, the state bears no responsibility for repealing or dealing with them. Is there anyone from the audience want to say anything at this point? Something I've been grappling with, especially since that picture on the bus, but something I've thought about a lot is how do we get them to understand that these things exist on a spectrum? It feels very, it doesn't feel, mm. it's true that they only really want to care when it's the, the absolute extreme. I had a quick thought about that. My um, plumber is like a real salt of the earth kind of guy. And um, he came round and he, um, 
he, he fixed what he needed to, but he saw my art on the walls and I gave him a card, you know. And so he went away and he didn't know that I was trans until he checked me out on, online afterwards. And he came back the next time to do some work and he was like, oh man, that's so cool. I watched the Piers Morgan interview. And that whole thing still keeps, yeah. It's like two years ago, but still. And he, he confessed, he was like, oh, um, by the way, I have a trans niece. You know, and, and I don't know what to do for her. I don't know how to help her. And it took me ages to work it out. Is it your niece? Is it your nephew? I don't know what's going on. Yeah. It was his yeah. niece. And um, she's 16. And so I said, well, here, have my book, The Trans Teen Survival Guide. But it's really cool, actually, because I'm noticing that a lot of people have in their family someone who's gay, someone yeah. who's trans, and so on. And that's, that's, I think, how we can help to get them to understand and to empathize. Yeah, I kind of want to echo that as well. Like, if everyone looked at their immediate circles and spoke with people in their immediate circles who they have access to, then that's when growth can hopefully happen. It's like a domino effect. Like, I'm mixed race, so I've got a white family who say real problematic shit. Like, and for me, it's like having a conversation with them and being like calling them out and being like, actually, what you're saying is wrong. Like, you shouldn't say that. And this is the reasons why. The hope is that then from outside of that point, they won't, like, my little cousins won't justify something they say racist as, I've got a black cousin. Like, that's my hope, that they won't say that. But yeah, I think you can't change the world, but if you can change the way that one person sees the world, you've done the job. And, I mean, from a somewhat pedagogical perspective in, in terms of the teaching I do, I try to get people to think about solidarity without care if that makes sense, in the ways in which we can form alliances and communities without emotionally investing in the same ways or emotionally recognising an issue uh, because we need to, right? There are so many strangers in the world, right? And we can never possibly care about all of them and all of their issues. But how do we go about building communities that can connect with people, not always on an emotional level? And I think this is the tricky bit. Um, I'm quite lucky. So at the university I work at, um, I've been allowed to kind of create a module called Law and Emotion. And in this module, like, you know, and firstly, that's a very queer thing to do in a law school, right? Talk about feelings. <laughs> but um, my way in is to recognise that feelings pervade law and politics generally. And what we need to be able to do is recognize what feelings do, right? And how do they draw our attention to certain things? How do they motivate certain things? And actually then recognize what we don't feel as well, right? So it's not just about the things we care about, but also the things that we have, oh, we're indifferent to. And indifference can be a really powerful space as well for having certain kinds of conversations that aren't laced with you know, anger or frustration or anxiety. And so I think these are some ways in which we can start having those sorts of conversations. And of course, you know, I'm not talking about like whole scale rollout of this as an educational program. I'm sure there are much more qualified people working in all sectors of education and, and communities who know what, uh, how to have these conversations. But I think that kind of local based scale is also really significant. It doesn't always have to happen at a national scale. Hi again, hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are and generally love podcasts and want to know how to make one, we're running a bunch of free two-day courses for young people to learn how to plan, make and share podcasts. And you'll do this by actually working on future Vite Nights episodes with us. We promise we're going to keep the course super lively and you're going to experience what it's really like to be part of a production team. And you'll get a name check on air. To apply, you just need to tell us a little bit about yourself and why this course would be particularly beneficial to you in approximately 100 words. And you can do that by emailing youngpeople at southbankcentre.co.uk. But if writing's not your thing, you can make a visual submission, such as a mood board, a mini video, drawing, and send it along to that email address. Once again, it's youngpeople at southbankcentre.co.uk. 
and all that info is up on Southbank Centre's website. Just search Southbank Centre Violet Nights and we should pop up. Cool. Anyway, back to the discussion. And here's the chair, Amelia Abraham. I think it's really important to remember that homophobia or transphobia, those people aren't born homophobic or transphobic or racist. They, they've been taught that. And so to try and keep that in mind when you're sort of having these conversations with people. And I was astounded. I interviewed this amazing woman called Lala Zanel, who's an African-American trans rights activist who works now at the ACLU, but she worked at the Anti-Violence Project, which basically a charity mm. that fights homophobic mm. and transphobic violence, and basically has been attacked in a sort of, I want to take out your life way for being a black trans woman herself, and goes to work and deals with like the murder of trans women every single day. And she was like, it's not these people's fault that they're committing these crimes like we need to look at the underlying problems in society and there was really no blame there and I was just so astounded that you could see it and and really understand that it's structural when you're that close to it it's just something that really amazed me like I've done a lot of panel talks where it's been all LGBT but I'm the only person of color in the room or something like that and then I start talking about the intersection of, of race and gender and sexuality, and suddenly you can see there that I literally got one one guy done a massive like an eye roll and was pissed that I dared to even mention that as my intersection as being a person of color as being a black woman that it would mean that our experiences are different. And I think mm. I could have spent time then arguing for him because I looked at him and I gave him a look and I was like, you know what, it's not even worth the time. And I think sometimes you also have to equate that thing of mm. as a, as a black woman. I'm not giving my emotional labor to that person because they're not going to change their mind. They're going to be wrong and strong and they're going to be happy with that and they're going to go home being like, I stood up to a black woman. He, he said that it's hard to be black and gay and it's not. It's harder for me as a white gay person. Like, You know they'd be really happy to say that. And it's, sometimes people will argue with you for fun. Yeah. Like Genuinely, they get so much joy out, out of eliciting anger from people and from you because you identify differently to how they do. And it's just not always worth it. If they want to be wrong and strong, let them be wrong and strong over there because at one point that's going to catch up with them. And I, I think it's that you often find that they're the ones who are so insecure. They're the most fragile people that they project every anxiety onto everyone else. And that in order to confront that, you need to be able to talk about it. And you need to be to do so in a way that can actually further that conversation. And, and I think sometimes if you're just talking about facts and figures without that kind of depth of emotional understanding, you're talking at each other in a way that's not going to change someone's mind. So sometimes you actually need to think at that more affective or emotional level in order to have that conversation. But then also know when it's time to leave. Yeah. <laughs> that's so true what you say about these people that almost like have more emotion. I remember watching Paris Lees, a friend of ours, on maybe like GMTV or something, yeah, yeah. talking about gender neutral school uniforms. And they just pulled out like whatever right wing pundit was free that morning to debate it with Paris. And Paris stayed so calm. And this woman who, as far as she's sort of explained on the show, like is completely cis herself, has no one trans in her family, doesn't really seem to know anyone trans, was like crying about the fact, like just freaking out about the fact that they were gonna change these uniforms. And it doesn't like affect her in any way really. And Paris who has, had the experience of being trans and, and feeling like forced to wear something that maybe she didn't want to wear at school, it was just so calm. It's like, it's so interesting who had more of an emotional mm. response, but it is a, it's a real skill to stay calm. And I think it's a skill that you have from what I've seen from mm. interviews. So if maybe you have some advice. 
Yeah, I think that you, you just have to pick and choose your battles, don't you? And and you can often tell when someone isn't movable at all. Mm. Uh, Al and I made a pact that, that Piers Morgan wouldn't get a rise out of us. Would, did you, that interview. would you go back on to, with Piers Morgan? We were invited back on and we, we said, said no, because yeah. we thought that, that people would be like, why are you going back for more abuse? Yeah. That doesn't yeah. make any sense. So. You know, um, round two would have been interesting, but... Um, We're complaining that... about sausage rolls all the time, <laughs> oh, right? Yeah. Literally. Uh, are there any other questions? Um, as far as it goes with acceptance, what's your opinion or advice on how to manage building those relationships within the family rather than giving them up mm. on them or walking away? Family relationships, like biological family relationships, can be difficult. They can be beautiful at the same time, but they can be difficult. And I think that as a queer person, like my... When I first came out, I came out as bisexual. And then it was like, as I've grown um, within myself and learned to know more things about like, identifying as queer and like questioning my gender and da da da, every stage of myself meant that it required a new conversation with my family. And sometimes they weren't ready for that conversation, which is why I had to take the, the decision to move, remove myself from that. It doesn't mean that I'm never going to talk to my family again at all. Uh, it just means that having that time and there's a time and there's a space and I think especially as a young person uh, advice I'd always give is always prioritizing yourself and your safety first sometimes you have this idea that you want to come up to your parents straight away you want to tell them everything because it's so exciting for you to know that you're this person you've discovered who you are but your parents and your family members aren't always ready for that discussion and also are you ready for what can potentially happen if they don't accept you in the way that you hope because we have these expectations and we, have, we can idealise what we hope our family members are going to do. And if they don't live up to that and actually it's very different, then it requires you to have to navigate that relationship with them and how can you exist in a space. Let's say if you, if you tell, talk to them about gender or sexuality and they come back, like hit you back with something transphobic and now you feel really bad in that space. Um, sometimes you'd live in a bubble and sometimes, I don't think the bubble is always that bad. Uh, as long as the bubble's safe. Mm. I, would, I would echo everything that uh, Tanya said and also maybe rethink this idea of coming out entirely because obviously there is this expectation socially that we come out if we're gay, queer, trans, um, and so on. But again, that is to dispossess us of our own selves because it belongs to the out right, the outside. And there was a psychologist in Sydney who actually came up with this term of like coming in, which is a way of reframing this entire conversation to actually say, you know, coming home or coming in is this idea that you own who you are and you invite people into your home, right? And it could be a specific space or it could be a kind of psychological space, but you are ultimately in control of that and you should remember that as well. And I think for many of us, we can find creative ways to exist and have to, right, to survive. Um, I was really fortunate. My coming out experience was, was very supportive. But, you know, you know who your family is better than anyone. So you can make those decisions. But ultimately, remember that you're in control of your own narrative. Never feel compelled or coerced into coming out. Just own who you are and just find ways to be fabulous. There's a great book by Madison Moore, literally called Fabulous. Uh, they're a genderqueer performance artist. And um, in that book, they write about how being fabulous is about the relationship of trauma and creativity. Right. For so many of us, that is why we talk about being fabulous is because trauma always haunts our existence, but we survive and we thrive in relation to that. So just a, a great. Thank you so, so much. I'm going to leave it there on being fabulous. Okay. Uh, that feels like a nice <laughs> note to end on. But I just want to um, have a clap for our panelists. Thank you so much for being so amazing.
I'm quite, I'm quite blown away by you. <laughs> So that's the end of the Violent Nights podcast. We hope you liked it. Please subscribe and write us a review if you like these episodes. Yeah, it would be great if you could catch our next episode where we focus on youth homelessness with the help of Cardboard Citizens. They're an amazing charity using theatre to help young people. Remember, hashtag Violet Nights and at Southbank Centre if you want to get involved in the conversation or visit the Southbank Centre website for more info on the future Violet Nights. Remember, it's free. Also, don't forget to apply for a spot on our free two-day podcast making course if you're aged between 18 and 25. Thanks for listening in. The podcast was produced by Phil Brown and exec produced by Crystal Genesis. I'm Nan Napoleon. And I'm Alex Williams and we'll be your hosts. Until then, bye. Latest.